uh, first of all, I'd say welcome to everybody for coming to this uh, no doubt very exciting lecture, um, public lecture at the LSE. Is it time for a digital detox? I'm sure you're all at the right place. There's some other events going on at the LSE as well, but this is the most interesting one, obviously. Okay, so um, I'll introduce myself first quickly, just so you know who I am and um, maybe why I'm here. My name is uh, Ellen Halsper. I'm a lecturer here at uh, the LSE in the Department of Media and Communications. And um, I do work on social media and on um, different levels and extensive use of uh, technology, including addiction, if you want to call it that, which is a little bit what the topic of today is going to be about. Um, so uh, just briefly, some housekeeping. Um, we're gonna, uh, Daniel Sieberg is going to talk for about half an hour, we said. Um, I'll uh, stop him when the half hour is up. And then after that, there will be time for a Q&A, some questions and answers. Um, the, we're probably going to finish by around um, 20 to 8, so that there's a bit of time for, um, for you to go outside. There will be books will be sold. You can get um, an autograph on it if you want one. Um, so that will be happening. That's more or less uh, the running order. Um, we hope that um, podcasts will be made available of the event. And, um, it should happen if there's no technical difficulties, but you never know. So just so you, um, so you know that this will be recorded. There is a hashtag for this event, for those of you who really want to do the digital thing, um, which is <coughs> hashtag LSE Tech. So if you want to tweet about this, go ahead. Um, I'll introduce uh, Daniel a little bit, just so you know, um, because if you will buy the book, the biographical information in the back is already out of date. This is the way, the fast way this world moves. Um, he is now actually something that he describes as a media outreach person at Google, um, which is very exciting, and if you're interested, I guess he can tell you more about that. Um, the book that he will be presenting today is his first book, so kind of a baby. <laughs> Um, and it's, a, it's a quite a personal account. When I was reading it, I realized you put a lot of yourself into it. Um, he's also worked for Tech This Out at, uh, at the BBC, technology gadgets program at the BBC, um, has contributed to uh, Nightline, to uh, Good Morning America at ABC, done stuff for PBS, CNN, all these kinds of things. A few uh, awards that you've been nominated for, for the News and Documentary uh, Emmy Awards, for example. and. Um, I think you were even business broadcasting all-star at a certain point in your life. So this is quite the, it's quite the achievements, and now the book. And um, I'm really looking forward to hearing about this uh, from you yourself after having read it. And I would like you to come up now right. and talk about it for about 30 minutes, and then we'll give the floor to you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for uh, coming here this evening, um, and thank you to... Uh, the LSE for, for having me as a guest. Um, I'm going to run through a, a presentation here, um, but I want to do a little exercise before we get underway. If everybody could take out their smartphone, and I know you all have one, so just take it out and hold it up for me. It's not like a rock concert, you don't have to turn it on or anything. All right, so now the what you have to do is pass it to the person next to you. All right, just have them take care of it. You can lock it, whatever you need to do. <clears throat> All right. So the purpose of that, yeah, don't read the other person's email. Or don't look at their pictures. 
Um, the purpose of that is obviously to think about um, not only what it means to be distracted by technology when you're perhaps engaged in something else, but also to think about how much that smartphone means to you today. You know, in five or six years ago, probably most of you didn't have one and certainly didn't have a device that did everything for you. And so coming into the 21st century has happened very rapidly when we think of what's in our pocket and what we're enabled to do. And, you know, a lot of you here are, are perhaps students and, and don't remember what it was like, the sort of finite experience uh, of getting online and getting offline. So for those of you who maybe came after <laughs> dial-up, I would just like to remind folks here in the audience what that sounds like. It's so, there's sort of a sentimentality attached to that sound now, isn't there? And this is the part where you curse because you got kicked off again with your 1200 baud modem. You're in the middle of uploading that 14K photo. All right. So these are some of the networks that I've had an opportunity to uh, work at and contribute to. Um, as Ellen pointed out at the beginning, I do uh, work now for Google, and I'm happy to talk more about that afterwards. But the book predates uh, all of that. Uh, it really came as a... Uh, a personal struggle. I covered uh, technology for the better part of 13 or 14 years, and it was, um, I got a chance to immerse myself in all kinds of cool stuff. So about late in 2009, I went home for the holidays, and I thought that I was the most super connected, um, turned on, got this new product, that new product uh, guy on the planet. And I went home to hang out with my family and my friends. And over the course of visiting with them during the Christmas holidays, I quickly realized I really didn't know a whole lot about what was going on in their lives. And I thought, how could this possibly be? I'm always online. I'm always sending messages and checking out their Facebook pages and doing all these different things on Twitter. And it occurred to me that I'd become a terrific broadcaster and a terrible communicator. And so I had lost a lot of the nuances in the relationships. I wasn't getting the depth and the meaningful sort of communication that I really wanted to have from these people. Now, part of that is because I was so busy. Um, I traveled a lot, but that was really no excuse. There were other ways that I could have used technology to my benefit, and I wasn't doing that. And so that was late in 2009, and that was really what triggered the book project. I quit social networks entirely uh, in early 2010. Um, tried to scale back on texting and emailing and all of those things. And that's where sort of the formula for the book started to come from. But before that, <clears throat> my wife and I, my wife is here, by the way. She's in the back row, so she can verify everything I'm talking about or tell you it's all a bunch of crap, um, is here with our daughter. And then next to her is a family friend named Daintree. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is because it relates to this particular part of the book that I would like to read to you. Um, Daintree's family owns a house in the south of France, and we decided to try to go there to try to help my dependency on technology. It didn't quite go as planned, so stick with me here, if you will. On July 4, 2009, my wife and I headed to a town called Boisson in the south of France to spend 12 days away from the distractions of New York City. 
We chose that rather remote spot because it's nestled in the rolling sunflower-sprinkled hills of Provence, Van Gogh's backyard, and because her parents' friends owned a rustic cottage there and let us stay for free. Thank you. Boisson is almost too quaint for words. Until you visit Provence, it's hard to imagine that such towns exist. A charming church at the center, a nearby bakery, a handful of shops with cheese and baguettes, and narrow winding roads lead to tiny ancient homes, each cuter than the next, with arched stone entries and wooden slats on windows. Boisson was meant to be the perfect place to disconnect from our modern world and focus on some good old-fashioned reconnected. As the science and technology correspondent for CBS News, I was always on the go, always working on my next story for national television shows and running off to the next assignment. In hindsight, I realized that I stretched myself too thin and wasn't home nearly enough. I relied heavily on staying connected to my wife through technology. It was about the occasional text message here or email there. We were never big phone people and preferred to skip too much small talk. But after eight years together, the lack of more meaningful and special communication had become a problem in our marriage. We were distracted and dissatisfied. When we were apart, the way we used technology wasn't bringing us closer together. And so our trip to Boisson was designed to be a self-intervention of sorts, a crafted oasis from the ones and zeros, a time for my wife and me to rekindle our love and romance face to face. It didn't turn out that way. Next door to the town of Boisson was a campground that offered free secured Wi-Fi to its visitors within range of the site's pool. Two days after our arrival, I used my broken French to claim we were staying at the campsite and needed the Wi-Fi password. Oui, s'il vous plaît? It worked. And so for the remainder of our vacation, I was often sneaking time online, lugging my laptop to the pool or using my iPhone. I felt bound by my work email, and working in news means you feel a constant need to keep up with what's happening, and in technology, that information moves pretty fast. I wasn't alone while I was online. My wife was nearby, often feeling neglected, and shouting at me to join her in the water, threatening to submerse my gadgets. As the days went by, my wife's palpable frustration grew in direct proportion to my increasing internet use. She made it clear that I seemed to be choosing the gadgets over her. This, I can tell you, does not result in quality snuggle time. Toward the end of our stay and during one of my devious internet sessions, I received an email from a producer at CBS News asking if I'd entertain the idea of swimming with sharks in the Bahamas for an early show series about conservation. I'm going to pull up a slide that's a bit out of order here. Thank you. I couldn't type yes absolutely fast enough. I was especially excited because I'd taken the scuba pool and classroom training, but hadn't completed the essential open water dives. In other words, I'd been given the chance to finalize my diver training with tiger, lemon, and Caribbean reef sharks as my underwater cheerleaders. By contrast, my sunbathing wife groaned while simultaneously exhaling, oh God. I couldn't tell if she was more annoyed that I was about to risk my life with sharks or that I was answering yet another work email. Two days later, our vacation over, we drove the five hours from Boisson to Nice in the wee hours of the morning to catch a plane to New York, where I dashed home to pack a bag, not forgetting my fins, wetsuit, and mask, head to the Newark airport, fly to Fort Lauderdale, spend a few hours there, and then fly to Nassau. All told, it took me 32 hours to travel from Baguetteville to Bahamian beaches. Now, during that time, I was back in full tech guy mode, with gadgets in my pocket, a Bluetooth headset nestled in my ear, sending emails to friends and family, almost as last rites, and researching shark behavior, mainly the number of fatal attacks. 
After a snag with immigration in Nassau, I eventually found myself on a small speedboat en route to a spot known as Tiger Beach, about 20 miles off the coast of West End, Grand Bahama. I had my Blackberry in one hand, madly typing messages to everyone and posting status updates on my Facebook page, and using the other hand to steady myself against the pounding waves. As we headed farther away from shore, I watched in abject horror. Not as sharks surrounded the boat, but as the bars of my cell phone reception dropped from four to two to the dreaded no service. I was cut off. It was the kind of disconnection that even rural Boisson hadn't provided. Now, within an hour of getting to the 40-foot main boat, a crew member shouted, Tiger, Tiger! We looked over the side. Sure enough, the distinctive striped markings of a tiger shark could be seen through the shallow tropical water. And it wasn't just one shark. There were about a dozen lemon sharks, too, which are only slightly smaller and less aggressive. And with razor-sharp teeth, did it really matter which was which? It was time to man up, suit up, and jump into the water without a cage to observe these marine predators up close. My diving buddy was experienced shark diver Stuart Cove, whose best advice was A, don't wave your hands around too much because they'll look like lunch, B, stay right next to me, and C, breathe. The worst thing you can do as an amateur diver is hold your breath, since it can cause serious lung damage or worse. Easier said than done when you're surrounded by some of the world's most efficient and effective predators. Now, while having a tiger shark swim within a few feet of you during your first open water dive seems a long way from disconnecting from technology, I'm here to tell you there's a direct link. I had to focus on my breathing, my vision, my movement, the pure basics of survival. It's a rare occasion in today's always-on world that we aren't allowed to let our minds wander or communicate with someone or pick up a smartphone. I know I hadn't experienced that sensation of being so cut off, also known as being focused, in many years. My life was in a continual loop, seeking feedback, data, and interaction. The tiger shark broke through that blabbering bleep 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 clutter, and I'll never forget staring into its unblinking eyes. I had been told sharks are capable of sensing a racing heartbeat through the pulses it makes in the water. Exude calm, everyone said. Yeah, right. All I wanted to do at that moment was search whether hitting a shark on the snout really makes an ounce of difference if it attacks. For a split second, I actually had the urge to use my Blackberry underwater while a fearsome predator stared me down. What the hell was wrong with me? And then the thought was gone. I was lost in something I couldn't appreciate until my first dive, the silence. Just the sound of bubbles escaping here and there, heartbeats, breathing, gurgling water, more breathing. Remember the breathing. Between being in near-paralytic awe of my imposing companions and steadying myself on the seafloor, I began to enjoy the connection with me, a pure thought process, the sheer survival, face to snout. Now, it's common knowledge that sharks have some of the sharpest teeth in the animal kingdom, but this one didn't even have to use them to cut through my electrical cords. During the five dives we took with the sharks, my confidence actually went up. I'd achieved a clarity of focus that may have helped me survive without losing a limb. When I got back in the boat, we were still at a cell phone range, so I was alone with my thoughts of adventure and excitement and mind-boggling, did I just do that, sentiments? That shark, that perfectly evolved, majestic tiger shark, was a call to action. I needed to be silent, to focus on communicating with me, without any digital interference. If I did, I'd feel stronger and more in control as I'd felt during the dives. Then I wanted to call my wife and tell her how I'd graduated beyond the, face the France intervention. I wanted to share my epiphany. But despite my revelation, it wasn't until nearly six months later that I did anything about it. 
And so that led up to going home for the holidays. And <clears throat> it was at that point that I realized all of the sharks in the world weren't going to help me to understand what it meant to really manage my technology dependency addiction. And uh, it took really the sum total of the dirty looks for my friends and family members, my own need to do it for business and personal reasons, to really sort of scale back and find a new approach for things. So I did. And that's where the book comes in. And it evolved into a broader sort of a, a project. But first, I want to just go over some statistics, uh, some recent ones, if you will. If you look back in January of 2009 to January in 2010, that's only one year. The number of smartphone subscribers here in the UK increased by 70%. So we talked a second ago about smartphones and how quickly they've become part of our lives. Think about how quick that is. And of course, it's not surprising to think about how many text messages are being sent as those smartphones increase. And this story was from today. Do you have sore thumbs? Apparently, the amount of texting injuries is increasing. So, so, or from this week, sorry, I should say, January 3rd. So a very recent story. There's that guy who survived the sharks. So I put together a little video that tries to illustrate what the book is about. I want to play that now. Um, and this is what you, oh. Yep, Kylie, this one's for you. Hi there, I'm Daniel Seberg and I'm a recovering tech addict. I may not be the worst example of somebody who lost their life to technology, but it got pretty bad. I spent more time in the online world and not enough time in the real one. Relationships with my family, my friends, even my wife suffered as a result. I felt isolated in the office. I even began to lose my sense of self. Now, maybe on some level you can relate too. Many of us who love technology are finding that instead of simplifying our lives, it's making it more complicated. Instead of being more in touch with the people we care about, we often feel disconnected. And juggling all these gadgets and devices, well, it can leave us feeling exhausted and distracted and take us away from the things and people that really matter. And so I wrote this book, The Digital Diet, a four-step plan to break your tech addiction and regain balance in your life. It's full of tips and exercises and a long-term strategy to manage your digital lifestyle. There's even a 28-day plan to empower you, your family, and even at your workplace to make the right decisions. And yes, in case you're wondering, you can download it as an ebook too. Because it's not anti-technology. In fact, the digital diet is about embracing technology for the right reasons and the right occasion. It's about making technology work for you, and not the other way around. Ultimately, it's about creating awareness and putting you in control. There's a time and a place for everything. It's all about a balance, because in our 21st century life, we need to stay in touch, be wired, and keep up with the times. But it can be done in a healthy manner with the digital diet. For now, all this talk about technology and a digital lifestyle has made me sort of hungry, so I need to get back to my lunch. Right, okay, so that took about 30 takes, incidentally. Um, so these are the four steps of the overarching plan, um, with a play on re. Uh, you see the first one is all about rethink. So the idea of rethink is just Taking a step back, in this case, literally a step back, um, and trying to get some perspective on how fast we've come to where we are. How many of you have encountered somebody 
who's doing just this all the time. And you know, there was an article today in the New York Times about how we've become almost hollowed out zombies as we walk along texting and trying to communicate with people. It's the kind of thing that's become almost commonplace, and yet we are all frustrated with it. You know, we experience it in different ways. We see people take out their smartphone at a table uh, at a restaurant, and we think, that's a really rude. The person I'm sitting across from me it, it means something to me. Why am I dumping this phone on the table and not spending time corresponding with them? So it, it, the, the premise of the first part of the book is really just to get that awareness and to think about what you're doing, the behaviors, what's brought us to where we are, that there are an increasing number of statistics that relate to obesity in children because of technology, that they spend too much time in front of screens and not enough time outside. You know, a lot of these things lead to other concerns emotionally, depression, stress. You know, there are real health concerns tied to all of these things, not just I feel overwhelmed and I can't communicate very well. So that's the first part of, of the strategy. Reboot is a little bit about, um, yeah. Nobody minds that? Anyone in the 10%? No? No one's going to admit it. Um, so Reboot is all about a little bit of detox. You know, I think we talked in the beginning about is it time for digital detox. The word detox throws people off and can scare them a bit. The strategy of a digital diet is not necessarily to get rid of anything unless that makes your life better. The point of a detox in terms of the diet itself is to take a day or two and get that observational experience of what's around you. You know, I think a lot of times we end up distracted, looking down, staring at screens, not realizing that there's something very meaningful right near us. And, you know, those types of things can be highlighted in some really interesting ways. There's some research that's being done that's tied to something called positive computing. And that's a whole movement within the technology world that looks at how the, the relationship we have with technology and how our devices can reinvigorate us. So for example, there's, let's say there's a program that you're about to go into a meeting at, at work and uh, you're a little bit stressed out, you're not sure about your presentation, you're trying to get a bit of a confidence boost. And so they're looking at ways that can go through your email and find emails from coworkers that maybe gave you a compliment recently, that, that maybe they recognize some of the work that you're doing. So you get a little bit of that positive message from your email or from your computer, and you go into that meeting and feel better. There are other things like uh, researchers are able to track where people walk and measure how they feel emotionally about something. So let's say you walk past a bakery on a regular occasion and you like the smells that you go by or you walk past a particular park you know and, and so they can measure those sorts of things your sensory reaction to that and then map that out and so it can remind you well you know what if you're feeling a little down today here's the route you should take you know so these are little ways that technologies can can boost our lives and make us feel better and so it's all about taking a step back and I don't think it's okay to text during sex that's just my opinion <coughs> Um, this is a, a, a part of the reboot phase. This is from a, a fairly recent um, experience. You can see that 150 students in Bournemouth University, they only spent, they spent 24 hours okay, away from social networking, email, internet, and TV. Um, you can see that 20% reported those feelings of, of distress, 11% felt isolated in some way. I just love those students who wanted to keep their phones next to them, like a comfort object. 
And, you know, that speaks again to what we were talking about at the beginning about how our devices mean so much to us now, that there's a relationship with them, they're personal. You know, you probably felt uncomfortable passing your smartphone to somebody else because it's got so much about you. It's your window into the world. So the idea of asking people to take some sort of time away from their technology is scary. It's much scarier than it was 10 or 15 years ago when it was a very finite experience of logging on and logging off. And so I totally understand that this is the apprehension that people have when we talk about this. But that is not what I'm advocating. It really is about a day or two of that kind of thing and then finding a long-term strategy to make it work. So reconnect is the third part of the book. And you know, it, it, it sounds sort of trite to say, well, just go and you know, hang out with somebody you know and maybe meet up with a family member you haven't had coffee with recently. But this is what it tends to turn out as a lot of the time, right? So these two people, maybe they set up a date online, they wanted to go out and hang out, and they end up sort of immersed in the online world. Now, my concern is when this becomes the primary way of communicating with people or that this happens all the time. Obviously, technology allows us to extend well beyond our immediate sphere. You know, if you think of your immediate sphere as the people in your family and your friends who you care about and you see them perhaps as much as you can, maybe they live in other parts of the world, but if you think of the extension out of you and, and how meaningful those people are to you, the internet and technology allows us to reach way beyond them to people who live anywhere in the world and communicate with them at any time. That can be wonderful. My concern is when we spend so much energy and focus on those people and not enough on the ones in our immediate sphere. And I think that it happens so easily and almost seamlessly that we don't necessarily think about it. Um, you know, a, a quick example, I mean, there are, this, all of this is fraught with contradictions, by the way. This is, there's no perfect way to deal with all this stuff. Our daughter is one years old. And the only way for my parents to see her, because they live in Canada, is through video chat. So our daughter first crawled towards a computer. You know, it was sort of this horrifying moment of seeing her interact with technology in a way that I thought, oh, she's so excited to see the computer, but she's so young, I want to take it away from her. But my mom is able to see her, what do I do? You know, so these are decisions that you have to make along the way. How young should my kids be when they have a cell phone? I get asked this question constantly. And my feeling is wait, wait as long as you can. They'll figure it out. They don't need to have it when they're six months old or a year or two. The time that they need it is you know, probably when they're in their teenage years maybe. And they can easily pick it up without a lot of help. So reconnect is, has a lot of sort of discussions about etiquette about looking at something called your virtual weight index, which admittedly is something that I sort of arbitrarily came up with. But I'm sure lots of you have heard of the BMI or the body mass index. And I tried to think of some way to create a formula that looks at the number of devices you have and how you use them for different people. So are you always emailing your best friend when you would prefer to maybe be talking on the phone? You know, is, is, are you re relying on text when you actually should go and see the person? You know, I used to be the person in the office who crafted the best emails you've ever read, right? I spent lots of time thinking about it, grammatically correct, send it to the boss. I thought, I'm in. The problem was I really didn't spend enough time in the boss's office or shaking his hand or making that kind of face-to-face -face connection. And the people who did got ahead of me. Their stories were on the air more than what mine were. And so, 
that kind of, even though it's a limited, short kind of interaction, it still means something to people. You know, think about the occasions you've had face-to-face with your friends or your family members. What did you talk about? Hopefully it was the stuff that you probably didn't talk about through your social networks. You know, that, it, that social networks end up being this almost Pleasantville place where people post the things that are wonderful or, or easy to talk about or easy to share. It's very rare that you come across somebody's social network profile and it's really what's going on in their life. You know, is that who you are? And for me, it was not who I was. And that was a big part of the realization that I had in writing this book. It was very, very difficult to admit that the internet Adonis that I had sculpted, the virtual Daniel Seberg, was no real reflection of who I am. And so, you know, I ask each of you to think about that. You know, how much of your online self is true to the root to, to you? You know, is that a projection of you? How much of it is? So, you know, these are not easy questions to necessarily answer right away, but I think they're worth thinking about. So, revitalize is the last part of the book because it's all about including technology to help you with your technology. Because there are wonderful ways to tap into apps, to programs, to things that can benefit you as you're navigating the, the online world. So, for example, this is a program called Rescue Time. And <clears throat> it's one of my favorites out there. It's a very small company. And by the way, one of my favorite buzz phrases these days is outsourcing self-control, right? <laughs> so sometimes we can't do it alone. We've got to have something or somebody else help us out. Rescue time is one of those things. So if you can see here, it gives you options on how long you want to focus for. So it will actually take you offline for a certain period of time so that you can focus on a particular task. Maybe it's creating a document or something. These graphs over here on the right, you'll get very, very detailed analytics on what's, where you're spending all your time, which websites you're on, for how long. It's a very stark realization of where your online time is going. Because how many of us have spent three, four, five hours online? You think, what have I done in that time? You know, where, where, where did the time, what, what, huh? And you turn around and get like 15 tabs open and I start on this prize item. So, I mean, this will actually give you those sorts of analytics. Then you've got uh, these alerts. It tells you you, you know, exceeded a certain amount of time that you want to have online. It can break it down into, I, I can only spend this much time on Twitter, this much time on wherever, or online entirely. You can even track different projects and so on. It's, it's, it's very, very handy. And, and, you know, analytics is kind of the, the keys to the kingdom these days, so it's worth, worth looking at. So those are the sort of four overarching um, steps of the book, if you will. Now within it is this 28-day digital diet, which I realize not everybody is going to be able to do the 28 days. It can be very intense, but I'm hoping that people sort of take from that the different tips and the different exercises and the things you can apply to your life as you go through it on a regular basis. Um, it's by no means a one-size-fits-all. I think that I have had um, occasions where I've fallen off the wagon. And I don't mean to stand here and pretend that I am the perfect person using technology. I don't think it's possible. I don't think anyone here eats the perfect food every day, right? There are days when we indulge in things that aren't good for us or that we just like. And that's fine. So I hope that people look at this as kind of a long-term strategy. And when I started out with this, and you remember that was two years ago, 
I felt alone in the wilderness. I was the tech guy talking about not being quite so techy and getting ridiculed for it. And people were sort of saying, what are you doing? You're pushing against the grain. You're supposed to be out there just saying everything's amazing. So now I feel like two years later, people are latching onto this a bit more, talking about it a bit more, discovering that there are a lot of benefits to be gained. Because when you look ahead to the future, and this is where I'll leave it, but if you look ahead to the future and what this means to interact with our technology, often people ask me, where are we going? What's the next big thing? And for me, the next trend that seems to be emerging is that our, our interaction with technology is becoming more seamless. So what I mean by that is if you know the Kinect Xbox 360 controller, you're using gestures to control the video game. You're not even holding a physical controller anymore. You know, the iPhone with Siri, when you're talking directions or what's my appointment today, you're not even typing on the keypad anymore. You know, you're, the, the interface is dissolving. And so if you think about what does that mean? Well, if we go back to, you know, if we go back to this, right, that was a process. There was, there was a moment where you thought about going online. It was an experience. But if you're using your body to just control things in a, in a very sort of simplistic way, maybe you're not thinking about what it means anymore. And so that awareness is critical. So I hope that I've made some sense here along the way. If you do decide to check it out, then maybe you'll look as, as happy as Happy Cat. Okay, thank you, Daniel. Yeah. There has to be a cat in this thing, <laughs> yes, right? Right. <laughs> That's the most... Uh, passed around image meme, on yes. the most, most passed yeah. around meme, the cat. Um, okay, so um, I, I will be kind of moderating the questions and the, uh, well, not the answers, you can give the answers, but uh, the, I just want to remind you kind of that uh, we would like it to be a question and not another like lecture if you ask something. Would be very nice if you could keep it short and brief. Uh, one of the things that I, uh, I would like to do is actually to take three before getting back to Daniel so that he can answer that. It tends to run a little bit more uh, smoothly, smoothly like that. Um, there are some roving mics, so um, if you hold up your hand, um, I will tell you where to go. If you can, when you do ask your question, state clearly what your name is and maybe where you're from or something. Unless you don't want to, you can remain anonymous if you want to, but it would be nice for us to, to know who's talking. Um, so. I guess uh, we can start, and so if people who have questions want to put their hands up. Um, okay, let's have one here, and then we'll take you as a second question, and here in the middle, the third. Or we'll do three, and then you're a second. And you're yeah. Hi, Daniel. Hi. Hi. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. It was a great lecture. Sure. Um, my name's Cameron, Cameron Mohammed. I'm a transmedia producer. Um, Carrying on with what you sort of finishing off with the future of technology, um, I'm sort of doing a lot of work with sort of augmented reality, mm. where it really is kind of seamless. Where does the diet come in terms of that? Where it's just technology is just there. Mm. Oh, that's a great question. So, yeah. so how, does, get, yeah. sorry, should we do the get three questions and then you answer? Oh, sure. Them? Yep. Yeah. No, <laughs> should make a note now. Yep. That makes it a little easier. Sorry. Yeah. So seamless reality and augmented. Yes. Does that mean all together? What does that mean? Yep. For? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So. Do you, do you want to give her the mic first when it gets there? Um, how, how do you think technology is used as a tool against capitalism? 
Okay. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hello, my name's Benjamin. Uh, do you advocate completely leaving all social networks? And do you think they're necessarily a bad thing? Okay. Because I think they've made me mentally ill. <laughs> you think they make you mentally ill? Okay. Okay, it's three very different questions. Do yes, great questions. All right. So augmented reality. Does everybody know what we're talking about with augmented reality? No? All right. Just a little overview of what augmented reality is. In a sense, it's when you're... I was trying not to bring up Google I work for Google, but Google Goggles is an idea of what augmented reality is. So if you hold up your smartphone using this particular app, it will tell you what's around you. So it'll say there's a restaurant right over here, there's a cool cafe over here, there's a bar nearby. It kind of it illuminates everything around you in a way that you, know, you don't have to search. You're literally just sort of getting this vision almost. It's, it's, it's very cool stuff. But it is in line with the idea of sort of this seamless interaction with, with our environment. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's a wonderful way to experience what's around you without thinking about it. Um, you know, at the same time, what does it do to mapping technologies and, and, you know, how we interact with our devices navigationally, which becomes such a big part of why we use them. You know, do we just speak it and it tells us where to go? Um, there's some fascinating stuff on the horizon with augmented reality, and I'm waiting for the day when there's a chip implanted in my eye, and I'm just able to see everything that's nearby without thinking about it. Um, I think that there are some great benefits to be had from it. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. You know, I just want people to have that awareness when it's happening. And if you do have augmented reality apps, they're very cool. And if you haven't checked them out, there are lots of them out there. But it really does um, highlight the world in a way that you maybe haven't seen it before. Um, oh, boy. Tool against capitalism. Are we out of time? Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> Tool against capitalism. Uh, all right, let's see. I think technology can be used as a tool against any sort of organized government or uh, company or anything else. I mean, we saw, for example, during the Occupy protests, people were using streaming video to show what was going on in real time all the time. You know, there was no more intermediary which I think, you know, if, if people want to illustrate what's happening in a, in a particular place or give people who can't access that area, you know, a better viewpoint of what's going on, now you have the ability to stream it live without anybody being in the way. And, you know, I, I will tell you, you know, we, I was fascinated with some of the Occupy video that was coming in from, from all corners of the world. Um, and so I think that, I think what it does as a tool is to make it more participatory. I mean, and it galvanizes people, you know, and whether it's against capitalism or it's against a dictatorship like we saw in Egypt in the Arab Spring, I mean, there are so many ways that technology can unite people. You know, I did a lot of stories about what was happening in Egypt when it was tied to Twitter and to Facebook, and um, I think that caught a lot of people by surprise. And you could argue that that sort of uprising or sentiment would have happened anyway, it maybe just would have taken a lot longer. So, um, you know, I think it can be a great rallying tool, and I, I don't think that's anything too revolutionary to say, but I think that it's increasingly available to anyone who wants it. Um, 
Oh, social networks is a bad thing. You know, it's funny because in the book I write about uh, the Web 2.0 suicide machine. So if you really want to absolutely erase your entire social network existence down to the last piece of binary code, talk to the Web 2.0 suicide machine because there are a bunch of artists, believe it or not, in the Netherlands who have banded together to help people totally erase their social network footprint. Do I advocate doing that? I, if it's absolutely a problem in your life, then that may be something to think about. But I think that social networks are increasingly aware of people's frustration with how they're being used. I'm not saying they're all doing a great job, but they're getting a little bit better at managing how you share information with different people. Maybe, you know, I'm gonna go back to Google just for a second if I can. The idea of circles, which I don't know how many have used Google Plus, but Circles mean that you can share different information with different people. So rather than broadcasting everything to everyone, you start thinking about who should listen or hear what I have to say about this particular subject. Now that was my problem with Facebook is that I treated everybody on Facebook the same. All of the hundreds of people who were my friends on Facebook, I mean, it was ridiculous, right? I mean, why would I tell everybody the same thing? It's like shouting it out in the street to everybody. And so it was unfair to them, and it was unfair to my real actual friends who were on there because I wasn't giving them a, a fair shake. I think that it's important to um, hold so, any sort of social network responsible for what they're doing. You know, give them feedback, try to make it better. And if it doesn't work for you, then you know, find a way to live without it. Because uh, you know, but it is hard. I mean, increasingly, it's where people are. Uh, they use it for finding work, for finding friends, for staying in touch, sharing photos. You know, it's a big part of our lives. So it's, I certainly don't mean to suggest that it's easy, but um, I did it for eight months. So and I live to tell the tale. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, more questions? Okay. Here, um, there, and I've got questions in the back. So is it Hi. Um, I'm, I'm Richard from a, uh, I actually work at a media agency, uh, fittingly enough, and I can identify with your experience because we, um, we had some social training recently and someone was talking about how the internet's making us a lot more social and then during the break we all had a tea break and everyone straight, went straight on their blackberries, so I think it, you know, it's, very, it's great tourism, but do you, do you think, do you think it, we've kind of shifted this way because it's novel or because it's kind of very instantly rewarding? Well, because actually the people around us are a bit crap and boring, <laughs> and there are more interesting people online. <laughs> Great. Okay. Yeah. Hi. Uh, my name is Ugo from Royal Holloway, University of London. Um, I have a question about the role of the media in all of this, uh, mm -hmm. given your previous work. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, I, mean, I, don't, I haven't done any research on this, but um, it's quite astonishing how uh, technology is reported more and more by the mainstream media and how as a result not just people like you or some people that are doing research is talking about ICTs all the time but it, like, everyone is talking about it all the time and do you see any um, any direct uh, link between how much the media is talking about all this stuff and how much obsession is growing among us hmm. My name's Sam. Um, I'm a student here at the LSE. Okay, um, how do you justify your sort of crusade against excessive technology use to your 
employers at Google. Ah, I was waiting for that question. So. Sure. All right. Um, so to answer your question about uh, why do we use all this stuff and is it just instantly rewarding or are all of our friends really crap and boring? Most of my friends are not crap and boring, but I will say that there's kind of, I think there's an innate, almost instinctual desire as a human being to seek out a belonging, an emotional connection to people. You know, we do it with our relationships, we do it with our jobs, we do it just as a part of life. We want to feel that from people. I think the idea of having a smartphone has amplified that ability. So you can do it anytime, anywhere. You can get this feedback all the time. Somebody messaging me, does somebody want me right now? Does somebody make me feel good for being part of their life? <clears throat> so it can be very addictive in a sense because we, we like that feeling, you know? And we can get it anytime we want now. A simple tweet, a simple status update, it takes two seconds. And so I also think that, you know, <laughs> we have sort of strayed away from understanding the value of that face-to-face -face connection and what that means. And it doesn't mean to hang out with friends, to have a night of, of no technology. Um, and it's also easy to get so much more in a short amount of time, you know? So you can get lots of those interactions in five minutes. Whereas if you're with somebody at coffee, you're kind of with that person for an hour, right? So it's all about measuring what that, what that kind of meaning means, you know? Does, it, does that time with somebody at coffee, is that, are you building that relationship in a way that's gonna help you for the next 50 or 60 years because you're gonna be friends with that person for a long time? Or do you really want to just have those kind of surface, shallow relationships very quickly with a whole bunch of people? And everyone's a little different. But I think that absolutely technology has changed the game in terms of um, making us think about those things. I hope. I hope we're thinking. That's the point of this whole discussion is to think about those things. Um, media, mainstream obsession. Yes, the media does. I think the media is very, very... Uh, they worry about being behind the curve, right? So they want to be out front. They want to offer places for people to go and talk about their stories and be engaged. Um, you know, uh, when I was at CNN, we were, <laughs> this is back in 2001, you know, we were obsessed with people commenting on a web page, right? I mean, this was a big deal back then. Um, yeah, I know. Um, you know, it evolved over time to try to sort of bring people together and what does this mean? Every network and media outlet these days has like a social media expert. So, you know, so they really do get heavily into this sort of thing and by extension report on it a lot and probably make a lot of people at home a little crazy thinking, do I need this? How do I use it? Is it necessary? Um, I, I don't know that the media is totally to blame, though. I mean, I think a lot of us discover things these days on our own. You know, we don't necessarily need the media to tell us what's cool or what's interesting. You know, it's, it's almost like our own media circles are the ones who maybe tell us what's out there or what's cool. And I mean, a lot of people maybe found out about, let's say, Osama bin Laden's death through Twitter, Facebook, you know. It, uh, possibly a site online. It wasn't necessarily through sitting in front of the television. But I think that what happens is there's this back and forth relationship 
You know, you hear about something on TV, then you go check it online, and then you search around for a bit, then you go back to the TV or the radio or whatever it is that you go back to, and there's kind of this circular relationship happening. So I think the media will always be fascinated with new technologies. I started at CNN as the technology correspondent. That position doesn't exist anymore because it became a subject that lots of people knew about. You know, it was a bit of a novelty 12 years ago to have a correspondent dedicated to technology. But nowadays, you know, they have lots of people who are focused on technology. So it's definitely changed a lot, and I don't know that it's all for the bad. But, um, <clears throat> and Google, yes, um, it was a big deal for me to join Google personally and to leave the journalistic world behind. Um, they are absolutely in favor of work-life balance. It's not like me writing the book is a big secret to them. They're fully aware of everything that I'm doing related to it. And it was important not only to, for me to support the book itself, but the message of the book, and, and that Google offers that sort of an environment. And I try to live within it. And as I, say, as I said earlier, I'm not perfect, and I don't think anybody is. But you know, my call, I'm speaking tomorrow at Google about this. So you know, it's the kind of thing that they're Every comp doesn't matter what company you work for. At the end of the day, it falls back to the individual. You know, you have to think about your own use of technology, and nobody's putting a gun to our heads to force us to use a particular thing all the time. And so, I hope that the message of the book resonates the same way as it did before. Yeah. Okay. More questions? Uh, yeah, the lady here in the back. Then I'll come to you. Was there another question? Yeah, and here in the middle. Okay, go ahead. Hi, I'm Margie from New York, and sorry, I was wondering if you would mind commenting on the power of the written note, if you think it's dead, if we're going to always resort to electronic Christmas cards and hmm. thank you letters on email, or if you think people in the workplace still appreciate a written hmm. letter, mm -hmm. or if... Um, you think it's going to be er completely erased? Great. Yes. And we have two which are more at the front. So if somebody could bring the mic. There's one mic coming there and here. So. Oh, don't go too far down. <laughs> um, you talked a lot about uh, emotion and how that's affected by the digital uh, era. But what about the idea that uh, technology is making us more stupid? for instance, and making us too quick to jump from knowledge to piece of knowledge, and then we pick up no knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the third one. Hi, um, I'm Richard. I'm a technical director at Sony PlayStation. Um, you were talking mostly about um, kind of social networks and the kind of smartphone, but I find I've always had a kind of need for information. Uh, which previously I would have got from newspapers or magazines, whatever. And I guess with smartphones, I can just consume more of it. And uh, I just wondered whether are we doomed for a kind of our attention span to just approach zero, like Ray Kurzweil's kind of technological singularity? And maybe by adopting your techniques, we'll always be just two or three years behind that curve, but still on the same path. Right. These are good questions, man. Seriously. All right. Well, the reason that I think people around me would like cursive writing to go away is because no one can read it. <laughs> Mine looks like crap. Um, 
do I think the written note will go away? I, I, I don't, other than, you know, this is the first time that I've written notes like this in, I don't know, like several days or a week. You know, it's just not something that I do very often. Um, I'm 40 years old, so I grew up learning cursive writing, taking notes in class. You know, I didn't have a laptop to, to take notes with or anything like that. So I appreciate that kind of nostalgia and what it means to put a pen to paper as a journalist. That's what I started with. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a very, um, you get a letter from somebody, I don't know how many, has anyone gotten a handwritten letter from anyone else in the last five years? A letter. How about the last six months? Two months. Yesterday. <laughs> a handwritten letter? Yeah. Who from? Yesterday? Okay. Um, so certainly there's such a personal element of that that I think is important when you see somebody take the time to craft that and write it out. There are cheats around the system. You know, iPhone, Apple offers an app where you can create a card and then they'll mail the card to you with somebody who actually writes it out on your behalf and then it arrives, right? That's not quite the same thing. I mean, there are services online that will even make it look like it was a woman or a man or, you know, so, I mean, it takes more time. It's not necessarily the most practical way to communicate. I hope it stays around in some form, but I think the reality is that it's, it's slowly going away. And there are more and more schools that are not teaching cursive writing. It's not as useful anymore. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I'm sad. I mean, it's not like I'm, I think it's a great thing necessarily, but I think that's just the reality. Of, of what we live in today. Um, doesn't make us stupid, technology. I, you know, I think we're all aware of Nick Carr and his, his uh, essay about, um, you know, what, sorry, where's the stupid question? It was up. I'm looking, I'm sorry. I said I'm stupid because I use technology. The, um, you know, the idea that we can all just kind of search for anything and be an instant expert and, you know, is that making us lazy and dumb? You know, I would argue that there's a big difference between knowledge and information. And we have very easy access to information. So I can look up anything I want. There's no more debates at the bar anymore because you just pull out your smartphone and say, you know what, let's look it up. But I will say there's a lot to be said for knowledge. You know, traveling to a place rather than just looking up <laughs> London, you spend some time in the city, you observe people and places. And, you know, you still can't get that from a digital experience. You can get it to a point, but I think there's a, a, a stage where that's lacking. And so I think, I don't think that it makes us dumber necessarily. I think it makes us more efficient, and I think it makes it, a lot of things more possible. Um, I think that it, in some cases it may limit the depth of our knowledge, and we don't realize that that's happening. You know, you read about something very quickly online, you think you know everything, because you haven't been there, you haven't seen it. And as the older generation, slightly, you sort of get frustrated with the younger folks who think they know everything, right? But, but I understand. I mean, I wish that I had access to the information that, that everyone has today, 20 years ago, when I was doing the paper. Um, but I hope that people still take the time to learn about their environment more than just their screen. Um, <clears throat> and the other question was about, oh, approaching the singular, right, attention span. See, I, I have no attention span. Um, 
You know, in the book I talk about a lot about how people's attention spans are winnowing. And in fact, there's a section, a whole section of multitasking and what it means to try to focus on one particular task. And the research is showing that the brain is really only capable of looking at maybe two things at once and doing it well. Beyond that, you start to convince yourself that you can do it. You end up losing track of where you are. There are some fascinating experiments that, they, that I write about where they take people who are convinced that they're great multitaskers and put them through a series of tests, and they actually do worse than the people who thought they couldn't multitask. And so it's a bit of a misnomer when you sort of, can, you know, you, you think, oh, well, I can have 15 tabs open on my computer and be on the phone and emailing and instant messaging and that you're actually getting anything done. And in a lot of cases, you just end up nowhere near where you started. Um, is it approaching the Ray Kurzweil singularity? Uh, you know, I think Kurzweil's discussion about man and machine and, you know, at some point we're going to not realize that machines have taken over and, and uh, we'll just be these sort of lazy humans watching the computers run the world. Um, I, I'm not totally convinced that that's going to happen, but um, I think that certainly if we're not aware and talking about it like we are now, that our ability to interact with our devices is going to get to the point where we're constantly bumping into each other. I mean, I think that's what's happening when you see people texting and walking. You know, they don't, there's no attention span anymore. People lose track of what they're doing and where they are. Um, so I hope it doesn't get quite to that, that point. All right, I think we definitely have time for three more questions. So if there's more uh, people, there was someone here, and I lost track of you who had a question that I didn't get to here, then they're in the back, and the lady there also. Hi, there, um, there seems to be um, a big push for sharing information. Facebook's big thing is sharing information, but is there really a need for people to share as much as they do? They feel like they're almost, sometimes I feel like people have been duped into actually sharing information because it's cool, mm. when actually it's just a way for companies to make profit, especially Facebook. Mm. Um, I was, you touched on how you think maybe our online profiles are perhaps not as impressive as our real selves. Um, do you think that we need social media to give us credibility as socially and professionally successful people in society? Or, um, and if you do, do you think, or how do, how do we kind of maintain that credibility if we're not using tech as much? Mm -hmm. <coughs> All right. Hi, my name's Scott up here. I work for a, a social media company here. Um, I'd be interested to hear your opinion about the, the digital newspaper business versus the, the physical newspaper business, especially about um, kind of like the New York Times, these historical newspapers that essentially are going to be going out of business within the next five years. Um, <clears throat> yes, sharing information. So, I think it's, uh, boy, no one's forcing us to share information. Although it certainly can be valuable and interesting and fun, you know, I think what Facebook and lots of other companies did was just make it easy and enabled people to do it. I think that we have always wanted to share. 
you know, what's the first thing that you want to do when you experience something, you want to share, you want to talk about it, you want to tweet about it. I mean, there are people who tweet about things while they're happening. They're giving birth and they're tweeting, right? I mean, there's this sort of thing that's going on that, you know, you want to share photos, you want to post them, you want to get that reaction from people. And I think a lot of the times it's also the difference between sharing something remotely and then sharing something with somebody who's with you. You know, I always want to bring my wife in and like share watching a YouTube video together. You know, like that's more fun than me just sending her a link. Um, so, you know, I think that sharing has always been around. I think that these companies have just capitalized on it. And you can't really fault them for that. They saw an opportunity and they went for it. Now, what they do with that information is important, and that is their responsibility. And Google included. And so, whoever, whichever company you decide to share information with, you absolutely should hold their feet to the fire. And if they're not doing it in a way that's responsible, then either get in touch with them, communicate with the media, quit, leave, tell your friends about it, complain, whatever it is. You know, it's your information, that's your currency. And so, I think that the onus is on us. Nobody's forcing us to do it, but at the same time, if we are doing it, then the responsibility is on us to keep an eye on that information because we're voluntarily putting it out there. Now, as for people who steal your information, that's a different story. But I think that in terms of the typical social network, um, you know, you just have to go back. And not a lot of people are even aware of what they're sharing. A friend of mine, she said, oh, I had no idea that my cell phone number was on my Facebook profile. I mean, she was getting all these weird texts and calls from people. I said, well, take it off your Facebook page, you know. So sometimes we're just a little cavalier about this today, and we don't go through that kind of vetting process ourselves and think, what's out there? And there are sites that will do that for you, by the way. They will go out there and cull together all of the social information that you've put online and say, here it is. This is what's out there about you. If I was X person, I would know your date of birth, I would know where you were born, your mother's maiden name, this, that, and the other thing. And so you can at least try to go out there and pull those things back as best as you can. Uh, social credibility, yes. I mean, I think that, you know, when I talked about whether or not your social network profile is you, there's a, getting rid of it entirely can be risky because, in a sense, you're erasing what a lot of people search for these days or look up as a reference or use to see who you're friends with, if you were drunk at a bar all the time, if, you know, you're a, a good professional candidate, who you're friends are, who your contacts are, how many friends do you have? I mean, a lot of these things become analytics for companies and, and they use them. So it, it's not an easy choice to make to scale that back or to get rid of it. And so in some ways it's ingrained in what we do. That said, I think that ultimately it comes back to your own personal decision on things. And if your job is more important than how you manage your personal life, then maybe you need to tip that way. If you're more concerned about how you are seen by other people, uh, you know, there are lots of controls and settings you can put in place to kind of manage all that stuff. But um, and it's also how you share, you know, going back to the idea of circles or in Facebook categorizing, you know, who sees what, you know, taking the time to kind of craft that approach rather than just a blah, kind of put it all out there. Um, and digital newspapers, you know, the New York Times was one of the first uh, publications to embrace Hangouts, which I don't know if anybody has seen a Hangout on Google+, but they held a Hangout with their reporters and with a number of readers, and, you know, it wasn't perfect, and, and some people were a little, they were kind of duds, frankly, they didn't really have any good questions, and they just kind of sat there in the Hangout, not really saying anything. Um, but 
you know, they're, they're trying. You know, they've created a paywall that's fairly successful. They've got the digital subscriber approach where you've got access to, your, to the tablet version, to your mobile version, and to the newspaper, all for one price. It seems to be going okay. I mean, yes, like the old gray lady is maybe not the person you think of first as pioneering tech, but they're trying. And they've got some really good tech reporters there who are uh, innovating in all sorts of ways, whether it's mapping technologies online, socially, sharing. Um, they're really going at it. So, I mean, I hope that they're around in five years and that they're even better than they are now. I mean, the paper will evolve. Maybe the newspaper will start to go away. But, you know, I started in newspapers 13 years ago as a reporter, and uh, they hadn't even heard of the web. So they've come a long way in a relatively short amount of time, and they're trying. I mean, they're not all that good, and, you know, they, they have some things to figure out, but I think the New York Times is actually doing pretty well. Um, I think we do have time for a few more questions. I think I saw some hands, and then this will be the last series. Okay, so let's see. Definitely <coughs> a question there. Does anybody else have a question? If not, I, I will ask one myself. <laughs> uh -oh. There you go. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Hi, my name is Rhonda Zalesny Green, and I work for a uh, telecommunications firm that does research in a lot of uh, developed country settings and I wanted to respond to your comment where you said that um, social media and a lot of these technology companies don't force you to share information or don't force you to do certain things but for me personally I, I think especially if you kind of look at it from a, a standpoint of people who are more wealthy compared to people who are not as wealthy I think it also may have a correlation to the knowledge and awareness about the internet and, and things that can and can't be done on the internet. And so when I compare, you know, some of the things that are shared or some of the things that are done using social media or using the internet, a lot of the times it's just because of a lack of awareness and this information is not always made readily available. And I think, for example, Facebook is a, a primary offender with this type of thing, with implementing changes that it doesn't tell you about. But then also with Google, when they introduced Google Wave, I'm very tech savvy, but I didn't ask for it and it just started appearing um, in my email system. So um, in saying what you said, I mean, how can you justify that when things are engineered to where there are there are no questions that can be raised and things are just done without your permission. I'm not sure I entirely understand your question, but is it, are you, help me understand. Are you, 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 your question is, is whether companies should, should yeah, tell you whether- Yeah, I was responding to, your yeah. to what you said about companies not being responsible, but yep. saying, okay, well- Oh, I no, think, I'm saying companies should I be responsible. I think they are, but yeah. then also examining, okay, perhaps do you think there's a gulf um, between people who are probably more wealthy and have mm -hmm. the, the knowledge about how to properly use the internet mm. and those who do not? And oh, if sure. so, do these companies have a responsibility to these people apart from just saying, hey, it's a new market to tap into? Sure. Okay. So, well, number one, I actually spent uh, about three weeks in Ethiopia a couple of years ago where technology is a total afterthought, right? The idea of, you know, being connected or something like that is is foreign. There's no 
there's barely uh, you know the idea of getting a phone line in some parts of the country, let alone anything past dial-up and beyond that, social networks are it's just largely a, a, a concept that just doesn't register with people there. <clears throat> That's at the extreme end of the spectrum. Yes, there are lots of developing countries where um, companies like Facebook and others would like to have a presence. They would like to get subscribers. That's their right as a, as a company to try to find those people who want to be part of them. Um, I think we saw in Egypt, a country where a lot of people, you, know, you may not have thought that many folks had access to the internet there. Well, it turns out a lot of them did. So much so they had to shut down the entire internet. The government tried to. So you know, I think that these companies absolutely uh, owe it to anyone in any country to educate them and, and get them involved and, and uh, explain to them what's going on and, and the changes that are happening. Is it always possible? I don't think it's as easy in some places. It may be remote or not have access to this information, but I think it can be extremely valuable and, and obviously can change the world. So um, I hope that answers your question. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so then I'll, I'll go kind of following up on that, because mm -hmm. a lot of the research shows that the impact that technology has on our everyday lives kind of depends who you are, where you are, when you are, who you're with, who you're talking to, so it's, it's kind of context dependent. So I guess, actually my question is a little bit about your book. Who are you writing this book for? Are mm. you kind of paraphrases, but are you an alcoholic writing a book for alcoholics or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. about how to limit the use or are you maybe an alcoholic writing a book to everybody saying like this is, there's universal laws, this is what we should do. Who, mm -hmm. who do you think you're talking to with, with what you're Yeah, writing? that's a good question. I mean, I think the word, you know, the word addiction gets overused, frankly, and I think that it gets diluted to the point where, you know, people don't think about what that means necessarily anymore. You're addicted to coffee. Scrabble, right? You're addicted to cocaine. Those are not the same things, obviously. So, you know, what does it mean to be addicted to technology? And I think that what's the, the, the point that the people that I'm writing for, are the people who realize that at some stage in their life, their dependence on technology, their use of anything digital, is at the expense of something else. And so that happens with drinking, that happens with drugs, that can happen with playing Scrabble. Right, the things that you are that should be doing are not happening because you're paying attention to something else that doesn't matter as much, or shouldn't matter as much, or you're not using it in a way that's healthy. And so, I hope that the audience is broad. I think we've all felt that in some way. You know, that there's a point where we feel overwhelmed, or exhausted, or confused, or um, would like permission to talk about these things. And you know, I don't think any, I don't know if anybody in this room would identify themselves as an alcoholic. But I'm sure that a lot of times they've been out, had too many drinks, or you know, wonder if that's affecting work, or whatever it is. I mean, there are aspects of any sort of substance or product or use that could affect our lives and how we perform without becoming this extreme case of somebody who's debilitated. And I think I fit somewhere in there. Do I, did I use technology, and do I use technology more than the average person? Probably, but I'm not on that way other end of the spectrum of people who are just completely immersed, you know, and I have seen those people, I've interviewed them, I've watched their relationships fall apart. Mm -hmm. My hope is this is more for sort of that broad spectrum in the middle. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, 
Thank you very much, Daniel. That was very interesting uh, for coming. I would also like to thank all of you for coming. This has been, there have been really good questions. I uh, just wanted to remind you that uh, there will be the book signing outside. You can buy a copy of the book and you know, keep up to date with all the other LSE public lectures that there are. There are folders and leaflets, and we really hope to see you again. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for some great questions.